the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Is it possible to be a successful leader and a compassionate human being? Today's guest, Jim Blake, says not only is it possible, but it's the key to effective leadership. In his book, The Zen Executive, Jim creates a blueprint for enlightened leadership. He draws from ancient teachings to help us achieve personal and professional goals, overcome challenges, and take risks. Jim is the CEO of a 130-year-old global nonprofit and author of the book, The Zen Executive, Gems of Wisdom for Enlightened Leadership. Welcome, Jim. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here with you. Jim, integrating spiritual principles with executive leadership principles is probably more important today than ever before. Would you agree that what we're experiencing in the world, that that this is really a good approach to achieving what we want to achieve? Actually, I do. And there's numerous reasons that I feel that way. But, But primarily, just as you alluded to, the sort of state of the world produces so much anxiety and stress uh, for the typical individual that one of the ways leaders can have a tremendous influence is by removing that sort of stress and anxiety from the workplace. And you do that through compassionate leadership. You do that through being a supportive leader, creating an environment where uh, associates can flourish, they can relax, they can feel heard, they have a sense of engagement. Because I think, as we all know, many of us who have uh, worked in the workplace, when you have the opposite experience of that, it doesn't just, you don't just leave it at the office at five o'clock. You often carry it at home. It impacts how you interact with your family, your pets, your friends. Um, I, I, uh, I hearken back to a time when I had a particularly difficult boss, and I was on call a lot on the weekend. I came up through information technology, so there was a lot of weekend call work. And I can remember every time I would see that name and number come up, I would have a physical reaction. Um, and, and it's those kinds of things that just contribute um, to you know stress and anxiety and so forth. So leaders today really have a, a tremendous opportunity to break that cycle and provide a space where people um, don't have to carry so much stress and anxiety. I can relate to what you're saying. I think my career, I kind of came up with, you have to be that tough manager, that leader that, you know, cracks the whip in order to get any type of result from your employee. And I can remember starting out doing public relations for a Fortune 500 company, and I had the same feelings that you did. I would get calls on a Sunday that the CEO wanted to work on a speech, and we would all have to go in, and it, it just wasn't pleasant to be a part of that. And and so I, I think what you're saying about bringing compassion and self-care and understanding that your employees need self-care as well, I think that's so important. I couldn't agree more, and I think the, the part that seems counterintuitive due to the Western you know, the decades of Western culture philosophy on leadership, which you alluded to, it's counterintuitive to suggest that I could have uh, our associates have fun at work, that I could treat them with kindness, that I could be understanding that life happens and that they may be late or they may miss a deadline. But the truth is, when you do these things, you're actually creating a space for your associates to be more productive. If you just look at it logically, 
which do we think is more productive? An associate that is constantly being yelled at, is stressed out and anxious when they're at work, afraid to make a mistake, fear, fearful to take a risk, or someone who feels appreciated, heard, supported, um, feels like it's okay to have fun at work as long as they, they get their tasks done on time. So it's, it really seems sort of logical, but we've sort of missed the point here in the West in terms of the connection between a person's well-being and their performance. Jim, when did you learn all of this? You've been a boss for many years. Was there ever a time when you didn't practice this? When did you have that aha moment? Oh, my goodness, Joan. Um, I actually probably owe a lot of people an apology from early on in my <laughs> career. I mean, I was not, uh, I was not a conscious leader. Um, I fell right into the, the same traps of leadership. I was taught by those who had hierarchical mindsets and thought that being a boss was telling people what to do and demanding this and demanding that. So certainly early in my career, um, I, I did not experience this. But it was really, and it wasn't any particular aha moment. It happened over time. But I will say maybe it was an aha experience. I had a particularly difficult uh experience with one particular boss who was very demanding, um, very critical, uh, intolerable of mistakes. And, and it just really, really impacted me uh, inside and outside of work. And I really began to notice just how much of an impact it was having on my personal life. And so it was sort of at that point when I made the decision that there has to be a better way. And I am never, ever going to be this kind of boss. And so how can I cultivate a philosophy and a leadership style that does the opposite of what I'm experiencing right now and actually nurtures and uplifts people because I think that will have much greater results. And so I just began to develop techniques and tools and read and study and, and compile all of these things together that I think do just that. Uh, and so far it has been very successful. You write a lot about a mission statement. What does this statement look like? Yeah, so this is really important. And I know, um, you know, all companies have mission statements and lots of uh, individuals like to write their mission statements. But what I've learned over time with experience is they can be really compelling and can actually become sort of a guiding principle uh, that sort of informs your decision making and sort of uh, your why, if you will, whether it's an organization or an individual. And so... The more that the mission statement itself comes from sort of where you are today, what do you represent today, what are you in the world, and what is your purpose, um, and if you can then make it short and compelling. So in an organization, you want as many people to be able to connect to it as possible. So we always, we always develop mission statements now from the ground up, getting everyone's input. Because the more it actually connects to who you are as an organization and the individual people that serve there, the more likely they are to remember it, abide by it, and sort of have it become a part of their purpose. And so short, compelling, meaningful, really meaningful to, to everyone who is behind this, what ends up happening is that you end up with sort of a collective affirmation, if you will. It goes beyond just a mission statement and sort of becomes this thing that is bigger than all of us, but something we're all connected to and striving for. And so um, there have been cases like here one of the mission statement we have is really, like I said, a sort of a guiding touchstone. Whenever we're considering new business opportunities or endeavors, the first thing we do is go back and say, does this connect to our mission statement? Does it support why we're here and why we're doing what we're doing? And so short, again, compelling, connected to as many people as you can, and you end up with this sort of collective consciousness and energy that's all moving in the same direction behind something that's really inspirational and not necessarily aspirational. Yeah, it's, it's making that switch from the old style of a dictatorship to more of a collaboration. Yes, indeed. So for someone who's listening to us right now, and he or she is an employee, and you know we're talking about the leaders and, and the things that they should be bringing to that role, if, if an employee doesn't have a boss who subscribes to the things that we're discussing here, how can that person navigate the environment that he or she may find himself in? Well, that's a, there's a lot in the book about just that, and it, it has a lot to do with your, your individual posture, so your inner posture in terms of your thoughts and emotions and how you manage those um, and how those can help translate to what you're experiencing. So that's one thing. 
And then secondly, at any point in time where you can find um, courses, techniques, um, or offerings on some of the things we talk about in the book, and just bring those to the table at work. Um, because, you know, bosses aren't necessarily going to do this work themselves. Um, leaders aren't the ones that uh, are not already on the path. And so a way you can sort of bring it in is to say, hey, I've stumbled across this. I think it would be great for the team. Is there any way we could have this person come in or we could attend this webinar together or things of that nature? So you're subtly bringing it in as something for the overall team and you hope that what is presented will rub off on not only the leader but also the other associates on the team. But in terms of your ability to navigate a, a, a more corporate um, structure that doesn't sort of hold to these values, it really becomes about your own self-care. And so the state of your thoughts and emotions and how those can support you and we talk a lot about those things in the book and some of the techniques you can use uh, to help navigate uh, a space like that. And so it really boils down to that every one of us has the opportunity to be a leader and we lead by example. And so whether our boss is implementing any of these strategies, we each can because we're going to, as you said, rub off on the people around us. That's a great observation and really an important point uh, because long before I, I came to the role I'm in now, I was in that spot. I was in a, corp- a corporate world that was largely hierarchical in leadership, um, and of course, very demanding and always wanting more and more. And, and and the business was always held above the associates that were serving. And so, I became a different kind of leader. And I began to lead my teams in my particular way. And I began to do my work in a particular way and interact with people in a particular way that suited sort of my belief system for how I wanted to be in the world. What that led to is I didn't always fit in. Uh, the good news is it got results. And so, um, there, I, you know, people made fun of me and talked about my, my Zen style, which is sort of the, the ti- why the title of the book is what it is. Um, and in some cases, uh, I didn't necessarily fit in with uh, the rest of the leadership group, but uh, the people I served with and, of course, me were much happier uh, much more productive and uh, successful in what we were doing. And your book is called The Zen Executive, but these are things that any one of us can implement in all areas of our lives. That is exactly correct. Um, it's really about, uh, like I said, the whole first section of the book is really about that. It's really about how to align yourself to go about being in this world in a different way. So there are all kinds of tools and tips and techniques for, for self-care, um, for how to align your consciousness and, and really focus on getting yourself healthy. Because whether you're a leader in a leadership position or an individual, the more you can align yourself with healthy practices, uh, the healthy you're gonna, healthier you're going to be overall. And so it begins with that. And then the, the remainder of the book is focused in on how now that I've sort of got my house in order, what kind of leaders, how can I apply this to leadership and the teams that I serve with? Jim, would you share one or two of your favorite techniques from the book? Sure. I think uh, there's a whole practice around really understanding how your thoughts and emotions impact your experience of the world. And I often refer to this as sort of the the inner posture, but it's sort of um, it's beginning to understand that you are not your thoughts. So every single one of us have this voice in our heads that is constantly chattering. (laughs) And sometimes we spiral down rabbit holes uh, around fear, anxiety and so forth. And so it's really beginning to understand, okay, I am not my thoughts. I can be the observer of these thoughts. I can notice the thoughts that I'm having, and then I can create some practices to sort of shift them or change them. So if I'm noticing I'm spiraling in fear about an upcoming meeting or an upcoming thing, I can choose to notice that and then create some affirmations, um, which are just positive statements about what I want to be, uh, that get, that occupy the mind. and and stop the spiral of of negative thinking, if you will. So really understanding how thoughts and emotions impact uh, not only your inner state, but also how you experience the world. So I'll I'll talk about that a little bit more. If you have a belief um, that you are just unlucky in life, Mm -hmm. then you sort of create this frame uh, and lens of how you see the world. And so everything you see that happens that is may or may not be even just a little bit bad, you attribute that to being unlucky. And because you've set yourself up that way, 
you're never open to the possibility or you never really see the things around you or the opportunities that may pop up that would be the opposite of that. So you just continue, you, you've drawn a conclusion and you just continue to gather evidence to support that conclusion. And so just that mental framework, you lose the capacity to see other opportunities that might be there that might be something different than you being unlucky. And so that's how our mental, just simple decisions and belief systems we have about ourselves and, and uh, our experience of the world continue to impact future experiences. I hope that makes sense. It does. And, and, you know, that's such a great example because that's probably, I believe, one of the biggest things that keeps us stuck because we have that belief that we're a victim or we're unlucky or things don't work out for us. And then we set out to see the world that way. We look for the things to confirm what we already believe. And you're right. We never step outside of that belief system. So I think if people just follow that one piece of advice, they will see major changes in their lives. 100% agree. And then the second one I would share is just to find some sort of practice that allows you to still the mind. Uh, for me, it's meditation. I, I have great success with meditation. I'm not, you know, three hours long or anything like that, just 10 to 15 minutes a day. But something that actually stills the mind that allows you to sort of create some space between you and that, that constantly chattering mind that I talked about. Some people take walks. Some people garden. Artists like to do their art. So it doesn't really matter what it is. It's something that sort of gets you out of your head uh, and, and creates some space because it's in that space where intuition can come in, where guidance can come in, where you can have aha moments. But if you're just constantly spiraling in the chattering mind, you create no space for inspiration or intuition. And so whatever that practice looks like for you, uh, I would say try to find that. And you, again, you will then begin to really be surprised at the coincidences that show up, at the ideas you have, at the aha moments that start to happen more frequently. It's really an important practice to, to help us get some space and create an opportunity for growth. Yeah, and I think creating that space is really important because there are so many things that are being thrown at us these days, financial instability, um, the economy, a pandemic. We have all of these things that seem so out of our control. However, like you said, when we create that space, you then can have some creative thinking. You can navigate these challenges more effectively. And so I think that really is a, um, a great point, especially for what we're facing in today's world. 100% agree. If you could leave our listeners with any piece of advice, what would that be? I would say um, find books, resources, whatever you can. I'll tell you this. The most profound change for me, the most profound transformation for me of all the things I talk about is self-acceptance and self-worth. Work on those two things. Uh, we are all so hard on ourselves and such critics of everything uh, in our experience. And it makes it really difficult to see the unlimited potential that we may have or see even the smallest potential we may have because we have this struggle in terms of our own self-worth and our own self-acceptance. And there's this societal pressure to conform uh, at all times and in all things and to worry so much about what they think. Um, and so my invitation is to really begin to explore that, really begin to explore within yourself where you may be feeling pressure to conform to this, that, or the other, to behave a certain way, to have a certain job, to dress a particular way, because each and every one of us are unique and individual expressions that uh, will only occur once in the universe. And the idea is to be authentic in that in individual expression. In fact, I would argue that's your superpower, is your unique presence and your unique gifts in the world no one else has. And so figuring, getting to a place where you can be at peace with that and begin to express that authentically really changes everything. Uh, it, it really opens you up to... I'm going to go so far as to say you begin, you begin, once you have those things in place where you're really beginning to accept yourself as you are and you really believe that you are worthy, um, you'll begin to start to get a lot of clarity about what your purpose is and direction or where you want to be. And you'll start to feel good about that. And it may not conform to your friends or your family's ideas, 
but you'll be way happier. And you sort of align, I guess I would say, with the universal energy. Um, it aligns with you when you are authentically you. And so coincidences happen and, and the right place and the right time experiences happen a lot more. Meeting the right people happen a lot more. It, it's when we try to be something we're not that we sort of struggle against uh, the energy that that we came here to bring each of us individually. Does that make sense? It does. And, and you know, there's one point that I, I was wrapping up, but there is a point that I want to bring up that you mentioned. You were talking about the way we feel about ourselves. Do you think, in addition to the old philosophy of how we think a leader should be, do you think the people that are the toughest leaders and not in a good way, the people that really crack down on their employees and run a tight ship, so to speak. Do you think it's because those people really are not comfortable with who they are? They have a lack of self-esteem. Do you think that's how it manifests? I think it can for sure. I, I would, I would, I would argue much as you're saying that a good portion of, of poor leaders is based on ego um, and something that is missing in them. And so they are exhorting, they are exerting the only power and authority that they can, and they're doing it in a not-so-positive way. The sad part is they could do that in a much more positive way that really impacts and changes lives. I would also say, though, that some folks are just ignorant, meaning, mm-hmm. and when I say ignorant, I don't mean in a really bad way. I mean, they just haven't been taught that there's a different way. They were brought up in a particular school of leadership, this is the way they were led. It's the way they've been taught to lead. It's the way they've always led. And they haven't had any access to sort of any of the new practices and approaches. And, you know, I, I think there's a, at least a small portion of leaders that given um, some of the techniques and tools that are out there would change. And, and especially once they began to see the results and how it can often be more effective than what they're doing today. And you can get those tools in Jim's book, The Zen Executive, Gems of Wisdom for Enlightened Leadership. If you'd like to learn more about Jim and his work, you can visit IamJimBlake.com. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. I have really enjoyed this conversation. It was truly my pleasure. And thank you again so much for the honor and privilege to be with you. And congratulations on all of your success. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path, personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. You've put your heart and soul into writing a book. So, how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life book club, created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. Joining us for this week's To Your Health segment is Dr. John Barbaro, the Chief Medical Officer at Bergen Newbridge Medical Center. Dr. Barbaro is also an Assistant Professor at Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School and the Chief Medical Advisor to Bergen County, New Jersey, acting as Medical Director for all county public health programs. Welcome, Dr. Barbaro. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Doctor, it's now the heart of the summer, and many of us spend a lot of time outside. How much of concern is skin cancer for the average person? It's an interesting question. You know, skin cancer is the fastest growing of all uh, treatable cancers, uh, particularly melanoma is. Now, the overall rates are still not super high, but it is growing in incidence. And so it is something to be aware of, particularly if you are in what we would call a higher risk group. And what are the different types of skin cancer? There's several different types. The, we generally break it into two categories, melanoma and non-melanoma, but non-melanoma includes a few different things, the two big ones being uh, what we would call uh, cutaneous squamous cell and basal cell carcinoma. And melanoma is what people typically think of as skin cancer. Melanoma usually, uh, hopefully if you're checking for it, can be found uh, when it's just confined just to the skin and has not gotten deeper 
yet to the outer skin, what we call the epidermis. If it's found in that stage, it can be removed uh, pretty easily surgically. When it gets deeper, it's when you get into a more invasive melanoma, which is the thing that's a little scarier, but still has pretty high uh, cure rates depending on when you catch it and, and where you catch it. Uh, basal cell and squamous cell carcinomas are a little different. They You tend to find them both in sun-exposed areas and non-sun-exposed areas, and they have a little bit of a different look to them. They can also be confused with other things that are just normal uh, findings on people's skin. So that's why it's important to have a physician check. So you just mentioned that they can be confused with other things. I know when I look at my skin, I see freckles and sunspots and moles and, and different things like that, and I'm sure most people do as well. So how do we differentiate between something that's benign and something that can be a problem? So it depends on a few different characteristics. Typically, we use a, a rule called the ABCDE rule. So um, asymmetry, border irregularity, uh, color variation, diameter greater than six millimeters, and evolution, which is really the biggest one, is if it's changing over time. So that's why, for instance, I have a lot of freckles myself. So I go yearly for a what we call a mole check. And, you know, I see a dermatologist once a year and they check um, everything to see if anything's changing. And if it's not, then we're probably in good shape. But it tends to be if it's out of the ordinary. There's other things that can look like skin cancers. There's something called actinic keratosis. Um, but again, that's something that um, a dermatologist or a physician can find. When they look at it closer, if you've ever gone, uh, with, with basically a scope, they'll look at the, uh, at, the, at the marking and be able to tell more what it actually is. Is this something that we should be doing annually the way we get an annual physical? So it's a, it's a great question because this is actually something that's argued about among physicians. Um, some uh, professional societies say that it's not necessary. Others say that everybody should have it done. And what I think most physicians would agree on is that if you are in a higher risk group, then you should probably be checked yearly. If you're in a lower risk group, it's probably fine to just keep an eye out in a on if there's anything changing. So the high-risk group, I should say what those are, because I've said it a, a few different times, um, uh, Caucasians over age 50, somebody who has a total nevus, a nevus is basically like a beauty mark or a freckle. So if you have 50 or more of those, or the presence of very large ones, um, then, you, then you'd be considered a higher risk. If you've already had skin cancer, obviously, you're at a higher risk. If you're on immunosuppressant drugs or medications, um, organ transplants, certain rheumatologic drugs like Humira, things like that. Um, and then if you have uh, a family history of melanoma in a first-degree relative, a parent, a child, a full sibling, or multiple second-degree relatives, second-degree relatives would be one step removed from that. So a niece, a nephew, a half-sibling, a grandparent, um, that would also put you at a higher risk. And lastly, very sun-sensitive uh, people, people who... Uh, burn very easily. They call it red hair phenotype, but doesn't necessarily mean red hair. It's light skin pigmentation, red or blonde hair, uh, high density freckling, or a light eye color like a, a green or blue or hazel. If you have a combination of those, then you're probably at higher risk. So high risk people should probably be checked yearly with a full body skin examination. Uh, people who are not high risk, it doesn't hurt to be checked yearly. Uh, although, like I said, there's some controversy about that because uh, if there's a false positive, you can end up having procedures that you don't need. But in reality, the risks of that are very low. And doctor, I'm sure there are a number of people like me. I'm old enough to remember, you know, growing up, we were in the sun all the time. We weren't paying attention to skin cancer. We had sunburns. You know, we sat out with the reflectors, with baby oil on. Have we done damage that cannot be reversed? Is it too late for some of us? Uh, it's... It's not that it's too late, um, but there probably is damage um, that was done over those times. I, I'm old enough to have been in some of that, so uh, I remember when, like, the strongest sunscreen was, like, an SPF 8. Now, you know, right. they go up to crazy high numbers. Um, but um, I think that there, there is some long-term damage, and staying ahead of it um, is preventative. So, again, even if you have long-term damage to the skin, uh, if you're doing a yearly check, as I mentioned before, a lot of, of, um, of melanomas are just in the very outer layers of the, of the skin. And if it's caught in that early stage, even if you have a good number of them, they can be easily excised with no long-term problems. Preventative methods. Yeah. What should we all be doing? So, I mean, I think that that's the key thing, right, is if you're going to be in a 
uh, high-intensity sun area, uh, you know, wear sunscreen, probably the most important one. Keep yourself shaded if possible. You know, try not to stay out in direct sunlight for prolonged periods of time. You know, look, the sun is good for you, too. There's a balance. It doesn't mean you should stay inside all of the time. You know, the sun provides vitamin D and other things that helps with people's moods and mental health. But I think with anything, there's too much and too little. So, you know, if you're going out in the sun, wear sunscreen, especially if you have fair skin. Um, you know, every once in a while, too, make sure you're not getting a sunburn. If you are starting to, to burn both inside, get yourself covered up. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Newbridge, you can visit their website, newbridgehealth.org. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Getting a health diagnosis can be scary. Studies show that having the right attitude can result in a more positive outcome. Joining us today to help us understand the power of the mind and how we can support our healing with thought is Mary Battaglia, a certified clinical hypnosis practitioner who is the founder of Metro Hypnosis Center. Mary helps people clear blocks, create new habits, and tap into universal power energy for healing. She is the author of the book, Transformation Through Hypnosis, Relax, clear your mind, and step into your power. Welcome, Mary. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Joan, it's a pleasure to be on your show today. So, Mary, when people receive a diagnosis, it it can be a very scary thing. And, you know, we have all types of concerns and fears that come up. How important is it to have the right mindset to take on this experience, to tackle whatever comes your way? Joan, it's so important to create a positive mindset, no matter what the issue is in the health uh, area, your mind is going to be your best tool that you want to feel positive thoughts and you want to be able to bring that into the mind because that's what's going to translate into the body, you receiving things, receiving information. So one of the things you can do is if you are faced with a diagnosis is actually write a positive affirmation. So you start feeding the mind positive thoughts so that you help yourself on your healing journey. So by doing that, Mary, will it help us make a shift from fear to faith? Yes, um, it will. The fear is the, the, sometimes we give the fear the power. We don't want to live in that fear, even though it's a scary time when you get certain diagnoses. If you stay in that fear, you give it the power, and then the mind is never going to be supportive for you with the positive. So it's really important to get that power in the beginning to yourself. I'm one of those types of people who doesn't like to take any type of drugs. I don't even like to take a Tylenol. So I always think about what if I get a diagnosis and I have to take some type of a medicine that scares me. How can a person learn to welcome whatever drug is prescribed in order to achieve maximum effectiveness and, and, you know, to not hinder what that drug can do to help? That's such an important question, Joan. Um, Most people don't want to take a medicine if they don't have to, right? So there's many situations that with their health issues that we have to take that medicine. So, for example, I work with uh, many different types of illnesses, but breast cancer is one of the things that I've worked with. And we call, um, when someone has to take the hormone therapy, we call it the golden pill. And we do a whole session on receiving this golden pill into the body, open and receiving. It's very important that you look at the pill as a tool for your healing and that you are open. Because if you take a a medicine that you don't want to take, your body is going to be sending that message out to the medicine. And you may not be as open to all the possibilities that the medicine can help you with. So it's very critical, even if you were getting IV uh, chemo or something like that, do a little blessing before they um, put it into you. There's many things that you can do um, and to create that relationship, because that's what you're creating with the medicine, and that you can visualize seeing that medicine coming into your body and healing you, taking away the cancer cells, shrinking the tumor, all the things that the medicine is meant to. And even with just medicine for blood pressure, diabetes, and things like that, the same thing. See the blood pressure uh, going into balance. See the blood sugars 
going to balance, no matter what the illness is, how uh, how severe it can be, there's ways of embracing the medicine to help you heal. We don't understand how powerful the mind is. Something that stuck with me for many years, a, a long time ago, I interviewed Dr. Bruce Lipton, who is the author of the book, Biology of Belief. And in our conversation, he had shared with me about a study that was done on cancer patients who received chemotherapy. One group received the actual chemotherapy drug, and the other part of the study, the other group actually received saline. They never got one drop of chemotherapy, but because they were so fearful of the side effects that they had heard about losing hair and being nauseous, that the people who received saline actually exhibited the side effects associated with chemotherapy without ever receiving a drop of the medicine. And that has stuck with me all these years. And that is the power of the mind. Like you said, we all look at the medicine and we all can, every medicine has a side effect. But if we focus too much on all the negative things that can happen to us when we take a medicine, then we might bring that into our lives because we are expecting it, right? When we expect it, things tend to flow that way. So even with something with a placebo, um, where they're giving you the fleas, because you're so worked up about it, you might create that feeling of nauseousness or, or whatever. It's not that you're trying to do that, but it's just coming to because you're expecting it. So the power of the mind to be open and the power of the mind to heal yourself is so important. Yeah, because as you just said, if if we have that suggestion and we focus on the negative and we can actually make the negatives happen, just imagine what we can do when we, we focus on the positive. That's, that's right, because we can bring the mind and expand it into healing. And whatever that means to you, healing is different for everyone. So healing could be the visualization of seeing yourself and feeling yourself getting better. And if we can see yourself taking a medicine and feeling okay with the medicine, but that the medicine is uh, actually helping me feel better and that I don't have those side effects. So I see my stomach feeling calm. So I see that I have an appetite and then I can eat the food. So the mindset really can help support it. And even if you might get a side effect, it might be diminished because you're not so focused on it. Is hypnosis a good tool for us to keep in our arsenal whenever we get a diagnosis? How how can it help us to heal and, and then to move forward after? Hypnosis is a wonderful tool to have. With an illness, first of all, one thing that you're helping with with hypnosis is creating those positive thoughts. You are approaching it from a different place. We want to approach it from a positive space in your mind. We want to be open to the healing that we can get. And hypnosis can help you also release your fears. There's work that you can do within yourself to let go of the fear of the medicine or the fear of dying or the fears that we have. Because it's the fears that inhibit us and that make us even more fearful. So we want to find the balance and hypnosis can help you clear your mind so that you can then allow the positive to come in not all the overwhelming thoughts that are coming into you. Mary, how can our listeners work with you? So um, people can work with me online. I do uh, online Zoom sessions for hypnosis, and they can um, check out my website at metrohypnosiscenter.com, and I can help them, whether it's an illness, uh, whether it's a medication, or really any life issue hypnosis uh, can help you with. Is hypnosis just as effective doing it virtually? It is very effective doing it virtually. Um, we create this space. All you need is a quiet space on your end. Um, but that clearing of the mind and that relaxation comes through on Zoom or whether it's in the office. It's amazing how effective it is because um, I think we're all getting used to being on these uh, Zoom environments as well. And the energy and the work and the um, connection we need all comes through on Zoom. And once again, Mary's website is MetroHypnosisCenter.com. Mary, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Joan. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you ever feel breathless when you are anxious? Hi, I'm Allison Ayati. I'm a musician, sound practitioner, and the creator of The Sound Life. 
an app for relaxation and meditation through sound and music. Anxiety starts with stress. Stress engages your fight or flight mechanism. Aerobic activity like running or fighting engages muscles that release carbon dioxide into your bloodstream. Excess carbon dioxide can make your blood slightly too acidic. High shallow breathing quickly expels carbon dioxide, which helps you maintain proper blood pH levels. Unfortunately, stress, although it engages the fight or flight mechanism, rarely necessitates an aerobic response such as running or fighting, but it will still induce high shallow breathing. High shallow breathing in the absence of physical exertion results in a deficit of carbon dioxide, a condition called alkalosis. Alkalosis produces the symptoms of anxiety, and that is why anxiety can make you feel breathless. Sound meditation that induces a relaxation response resulting in natural belly breathing helps balance blood pH levels, which in turn reduces the symptoms of anxiety. To learn more about sound healing and healing music, go to livingthesoundlife.com. Sound meditation is not a replacement for medical or psychological intervention. to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself, your products, and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. As a producer and radio host who has conducted more than 2,000 interviews, I have experienced all kinds of conversations. Some are great and leave the audience wanting more, while others are uninteresting, significantly diminishing the guest's appearance. In my training program, it's your time to shine. I provide valuable information that will empower you to make media appearances more impactful. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more about how I can help you shine like a pro, visit cyacyl.com slash media training. That's cyacyl.com slash media training. We create energetic patterns in places we occupy the most, like our homes and workplaces. What most people don't know is that these energetic patterns affect our lives on a physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual level. Imagine what type of energetic patterns are released from couples when a divorce is in the mix. Usually, there are a lot of arguments compounded with sadness and fear. If one of the couples remains in the home after the divorce, those energetic patterns are embedded into their surroundings, including the walls, furniture, and even the bed they both slept on. If the other moves out, the furnishings they take with them are still carrying the energetic patterns from the relationship. During this time, the best way to move forward in your personal environment is to have your space professionally cleared with the intention of healing on all levels. Next, take inventory of the furnishings you are keeping. This is a good time to get rid of any remaining items that bring you sadness or unpleasant memories. Now, it's time to make a home for you and your things. As you start your new single life over, begin to remember what makes you happy. What makes your heart sing? What are your passions? You can start by surrounding yourself with the elements that support your creativity and passions. Remember, this is your space and your time. Your space should reflect who you are. Starting your life over can be a cathartic experience. Embrace the moment and make it count. This is Roxanne D'Angelo, a feng shui and space clearing consultant. If you would like more information, you could reach me on the web at crystalclearenergies.com or call 201-615-0960. productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Emanuela Fasoni, a certified health and life coach who has helped people experience breakthroughs in their health and lives. She's the author of the book, Healing Through Nature's Medicine. Emanuela is here today to discuss gut health during and after antibiotics. Welcome, Emanuela. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. It's a pleasure. Emanuela, Many people take antibiotics without giving any thought to what the drug does to their body. These drugs kill bad bacteria, but at the same time, they also kill the good bacteria. So, Emanuela, how do we know that we're having a gut issue from antibiotics? What would be some of the symptoms? You can either have some sort of irritable bowel syndrome, starting to have diarrhea, vomiting, nausea, um, 
chronic fatigue and you also can, this is what leads to degenerative chronic conditions that we have. What can we do to lessen that damage? Stock up on ginger root, anise and fennel seeds and also caraway seeds. Make it into a tea. You can just slightly brew the seeds. This can also help with any gas issues or muscle spasms in your stomach that you're having in your digestive tract. Also, I would recommend highly repopulating your gut flora. And this starts with acidophilus, which helps with the large intestines and also a multi-strain probiotic. All of these probiotics should be micro-blended with minerals that feeds the probiotics to make powerful. Also adding in a digestive enzyme with any cooked meals. Eat two tablespoons of organic shelled hemp seeds a day, as well as adding in coconut oil. Coconut oil has been proven to kill any microbes in your system and really help with the MCFA also helps with immediately breaking down any enzymes in our gastric juices as well. So avoid coffee would be also another suggestion to really help alleviate indigestion. And if you do suspect that you are having intestinal yeast bacteria or parasites, I do have a raw garlic protocol that I do put people on for four weeks. When we take a probiotic, how should it be taken to be most effective? When you're taking the antibiotics and probiotic at the same time, probiotics powerful in healing that they will wipe the antibiotics out of your system very, very, very quickly. So what I would recommend is take the acidophilus and the probiotics at least four hours before you're going to take the antibiotics. And Emanuela, is there anything else you want us to know? Yes. Also, adding in, consuming some sea vegetables and green juices, veggie juices daily, that's going to offer the body the organic minerals required to help digestion as well. And, um, you know, also to really with hydrochloric acid, you can also add in some activated charcoal, if anything, to help with the balance in your stomach and get rid of any toxins that have been built up from the antibiotic use, and it can carry it out of your body easier. Emanuela, thank you so much for joining us. As I said, so many people take antibiotics routinely, and and they really don't give much thought to what it is doing to our gut. And, And if we've learned anything over the past few years, it's the importance of our gut health. So thank you for giving us this information. If our listeners would like to learn more about Emanuela and her work, you can visit embodyvitality.net. Or as always, to hear more from Emanuela, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Emanuela. Do you believe that there can be a silver lining from tragedy and that blessings come in disguise? Hi, this is Joan Herman here with a lesson learned while earning my PhD in life. Your attitude determines how you view a situation and how you move through it. A tragedy is defined as an event causing great suffering, destruction, and distress. We understand the meaning of those words. However, I believe that the important component is how we view the situation. What may be a tragedy to one person is nothing more than a bump in the road to another. While we can agree that events such as death, divorce, or a job loss create less than desirable circumstances, each can be viewed and handled differently from one person to the next. The key is that person's outlook. There are people who see the glass half full in all situations and others who see it as half empty. We have a choice about how we view what occurs in our life, and that choice determines how we will transition through a tragic experience. So what is the key to getting through a tragedy? First and foremost, we must recognize that we have a choice in the situation. When a tragedy occurs, often we believe that we are a victim of circumstance and that this will be our lot in life. We think that we will never recover. The key to moving on is to know that you have the power to change the situation. No matter how devastating a circumstance, you have the power to get through it. You are not a victim. The choice is yours. After my mother and sister died and my 23-year marriage ended all within a period of six months, I knew I was at a fork in my life. I could go one way and let the loss and pain defeat me. I could be a victim or I could go in a different direction and turn the pain into something positive, something with meaning. It was my choice. We all have that choice. Some people create a charity from the loss of a child. Others write books based on their experience. 
while others make necessary life changes, such as getting sober. Tragedy has the power to transform us, and it provides hidden blessings if we take the time to look for them. I think what is allowable is what you need. Initial hurt, sadness, grief are all normal emotions, and they should be felt. Never suppress your feelings. The problem occurs when you allow yourself to stay stuck, when you assume the role of victim. It's important to get help if you cannot get going by yourself. Read books or seek counsel that can help you get your head in the game. Reach out to friends and loved ones. Isolation can make the situation worse. Seek professional assistance if you're overwhelmed, depressed, or have suicidal thoughts. Remember, you're not alone and that you have a choice. It is absolutely okay to feel scared and lonely. Don't ever let someone make you feel less than because you're grieving or in pain. Everyone heals in their own time. There's no right or wrong way to grieve, and there's no timetable. A true friend would want to know what's going on in your life. It's never too much to tell someone you love that you're in trouble and need help. You should never be ashamed. There are blessings in every situation, but sometimes you have to look harder to find them. When my father was dying from cancer, while it was a horrible experience, it was also a gift because when I took him for treatment every day, I really got to know him. We talked and we laughed and we spent precious time together. I had to look for that gift, but now I treasure it. How we experience our life comes from how we view what we experience. As Dr. Wayne Dyer said, when we change the way we look at things, the things we look at change. Thanks for spending these minutes with me. For more inspiration and empowering tools, visit joanherman.com. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.